You can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 28. We're actually going to wrap up 1 Samuel today. Um, we're in chapters 28 through, uh, through actually the first chapter of 2 Samuel. And um, it can be a little confusing as you read this section because there are things that are some, there's some things that are out of chronological order, and there's also parallel stories happening at the same time. So I want to try and walk you through that in these first few slides to help you uh, hopefully get a skeleton of, of what we're going into today. So in 1 Samuel 28, 1 and 2, uh, the Philistines have decided it's time to, to battle against Israel yet again. And King Achish insists that uh, David joins them. King Achish is a Philistine king. He's in Gath. David, in, in chapter 27, fled to him. He's convinced uh, King Achish that he's on his side. So now Achish says, all right, I want you to go to battle with us, the Philistines, against the Israelites. Then 1 Samuel 29, 1 through 10, uh, the Philistines gather, but the other Philistines see David and say, no way. And David is excluded. And meanwhile, uh, Israel is, is gathering, they're gathering their troops, their army at Jezreel. Then in 29, 11 through 30, David heads back to Ziklag, the, uh, the town that um, King Achish had uh, given him as the Israelites are, are getting closer and closer to the battle. Then chapter 28, verses 5 through 25, um, we see that Saul is freaking out. He's terrified and he's desperate, and he goes to a medium. He goes to a person that helps the living uh, try and communicate with the dead. In chapter 30, David, as he gets back to Ziklag, he's discovered that the Amalekites have raided uh, their town. They've burned it down. They've stolen everything of value to them, including their wives and children, um, and David is, is going to redeem the situation. And then in 31... Uh, as David is dealing with the Amalekites about 100 miles north, uh, Saul and the Israelites are battling the Philistines. And this is where Saul and his sons will die. And then 2 Samuel 1, uh, David finds out and, and David laments uh, for Israel. He laments over the deaths of uh, Saul and his sons. So here's our truth statement for uh, today. It's wait for the Lord, be strong. And let your heart take courage. And if you're like, Greg, that is the best truth statement ever. It's because I ripped it off from Psalm 27, 14. Um, I, I think it fits so well here with our passage. And when we see Saul who does not wait on the Lord. And we've been seeing that for many, many chapters. And David who does. So wait, wait, um, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. All right, let's dive in. Verse 1 of chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war, to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So like I said, Achish had given David the town of Ziklag, Ziklag for him and his men. And from there, they were making raids. And, and uh, he convinced Achish that, that their raids were actually hurting the Israelites. But, but David was uh, often raiding people that were both enemies of the Israelites and the Philistines. And David would leave no survivors so that no one could come back and tell King Achish what David was really up to. So Achish 
He'd been tricked by David, and he had thought that David had made himself a stench among the Israelites. So he, he, he had assumed that David was kind of trapped with him. David had no choice but to be loyal to him. So he comes, he says, we're going to battle all the Philistines against the Israelites, and you're joining me. And we don't know what to do. We don't know what David is going to do here. This is quite uh, the pickle that he finds himself in. So Achish says to David, or David says to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And that response is a little bit funny. We know that David is cunning. We know that he is crafty. So you wonder, does David have something up his sleeve here, right? Has he concocted some, um, some plan? We do know that there's no way David's going to attack Israel. He's not going to harm Israel. He won't even harm Saul, who's trying to kill him. So there's no way he will do that. And then the king says to David, he says, okay, you're going to be my bodyguard. Or literally, he says, you're going to be the guard of my head for life, which is a pretty ironic thing to say to David, who chopped off the head of Goliath, the Philistine. Chapter 29, verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped uh, by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the, Lord of the, as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel? who has been with me now uh, for days and years, which is an exaggeration. It's been like 16 months. Um, and, and since he deserted uh, to me, I found no fault in him to this day. So the commanders see this is David. This is the guy that has a song about him, that, that he has slayed tens of thousands. And, and he sees what Achish doesn't see. Right? He sees that David can't be trusted among the Philistines because the tens of thousands that he's killed, those have been Philistines. Well, Achish immediately proclaims, no way, I found no guilt in David. Now, he's been deceived, but, but it is true in a sense that there's no guilt in David against the Lord, against the Lord's anointed, against Israel. Well, the commanders, they don't buy it. They, they recognize that all David would need to do is come with them in battle and then at the right moment turn on the Philistines and yet again save Israel from the Philistines. So they tell King Achish, yeah, get rid of David. He's out of here. So Achish comes back to David and, and he blames the other kings for not trusting David. And again, he says, I have found no fault in you. And here's David's response in verse 8 of chapter 29. David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? David seems to be truly protesting here. And, and while he is cunning, I don't necessarily know that he's a great actor. I, I wonder... I think we have to wonder, is, does David want to go into battle? Does he want to go with them? Now, we know he won't harm Israel, but I wonder if those commanders were right, that if David was excited to go to battle, 
with the Philistines so that he could defeat the Philistines so that he could show Achish and all of them what his servant could do because he was ready to battle the Lord's enemies. We don't know for sure, but we do know that God is sovereign, that God does not allow Achish's plans. He does not allow David's plans to move forward. God is providentially at work, and he has planned that in this battle, Saul and his sons will die, along with many other Israelites. The reason David will not be in the battle isn't Achish or the commanders. This is God. This is God's hand. He is in control. God was not going to deliver Israel this day from the Philistines. So David, who always defeats the Philistines, certainly could not be there. God is doing exactly what he said he would do. He said his hand would be against the king and the people if they disobeyed, as Saul has disobeyed in not trusting the Lord and not waiting on the Lord and not doing what the Lord says. So God is is going to deliver good on his promise. And God is also giving his people, ultimately, the king that he has chosen. God will keep David from doing any harm to Saul this day. And David doesn't know what's going on. I kind of think he really wanted to be there in battle. I wonder if he did hope to turn on the Philistines and deliver the Israelites. David had no idea, though, that God was at work. And how often have you and I looked back and realized God was at work in something that we had no clue in, right? Maybe it was a difficult circumstance, maybe not. Maybe it was just a normal day. And yet God was providentially at work. John 5, Jesus tells uh, tells us that his father and him are always at work. God never stops working, doing his good, even when we can't see what God is doing or when we can't make sense of the circumstances that we feel stuck in, maybe we're even angry about, but God is at work. God's at work right now in ways that we probably can't see, ways that we're not aware of. Are we trusting him in that? Verse 9, Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God which you wonder how David like held the smile back there. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us into battle. So for a third time, uh, Achish uh, declares that David is innocent. And there are so many times when, when David reminds us of Jesus, too many times uh, in, in just today's passage for me to share. But here's one. Right? We, we remember uh, Jesus before Pilate, declared innocent in a couple of Gospels three different times. we got to keep moving, though. Verse 11, the next morning, David and his men, they take off for Ziklag, um, and, and they go at a, at a pretty quick pace. Let's jump back, though, to uh, chapter 28. And before we, we even get to Saul, we get some strange details in verse 3. Now, Saul, or Samuel had died, which we just learned that a little bit ago. Um, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And then it says, And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. And this seems like a weird detail. Uh, it, it reminds us, though, that Saul, as the king, he actually did start off well. There were things that he did right. The Spirit of the Lord was on him. 
And one of the things he did is he got rid of the, the, the mediums, the, the people that would help the living uh, communicate with the dead. And the, the necromancers, is, it's like a fancy word for a wizard. Uh, I don't know why they don't just call him a wizard. Um, but, but God says multiple times in Leviticus and, and in Deuteronomy, no, Israel, get rid of these people. These people should not be among you. Do not seek them. Do not turn to them. Trust in me. Trust in Yahweh. So, so Saul did that. He, he was obedient. Um, you might remember after, uh, after Saul didn't uh, get rid of the Amalekites like the Lord told him to, Samuel comes and confronts Saul. And he says to him, your rebellion is as divination. And I assume that that was a really hard comparison for Saul to hear. This guy who I'm, I'm guessing he knew what the Lord thought of mediums and necromancers, divination. And that's why he got rid of them. And now he hears that his disobedience, not fully obeying the Lord, that that failure with the Amalekites is compared to the sin of divination. Well, verse 5, this will start to make sense here. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Right, he's terrified. The Philistines are coming. Maybe he's heard that David is with them. And if that's true, that David and the Philistines are coming up into battle against Israel, those are his two greatest enemies. And now he's trembling. He's lost his capacity to be the king of Israel. Well, Saul uh, seeks the Lord, but he gets no response. Just as the Lord promised, if, if you disobey me, or if you reject me as God, I'm going to reject you. You'll call out, and I won't even respond to you. So he's desperate. He's hopeless. He's lost. And we've all been in situations, maybe not like this, but, but where you are desperate, and you're willing to try maybe just about anything to get what you need. So he thinks of one last option. He asks for a medium, someone that can help him communicate with someone who's dead. And he knew this was sin, but, but he thought that he could do this in secret. He, he wears a disguise. And it's shocking what we're willing to do when we think no one can see us. Right? What, what we're willing to do, what we're even willing to think about. There are times, or there was a time when Saul thought he would never do this, and yet this is where he found himself. Uh, Nels is going to come up, and he's going to read uh, this section from uh, 1 Samuel 28, 8 through 19, so you can follow along in your Bibles. This is, once again, 1 Samuel 28, 8 through 19. So, so, so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall, shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. 
And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give, you, will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give, you the, will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. Thank you, Nels. This was not what Saul was hoping for, right? He, he knows now that his judgment for disobedience and not taking care of the, the Amalekites will come the next day, that he and his sons will die, that God is finally removing Saul as the king. And Saul falls to the ground filled with fear. He has no strength left in him. He's completely void of hope because he's without God. And I think Saul is an excellent picture of, of living life separate from God, the, the hopelessness. It's an existence void of hope because you're without God. Saul had been able to fool himself for a time. He had carried on. He tried to make things work. He was the king, so he had all kinds of uh, resources at his disposal, and he used everything he could to try and make life work. But now he's exhausted every resource and recognizes he's without hope. Ephesians 2.12 reminds me of Saul in this, in this place. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise. And it says this, having no hope and without God in the world. This is Saul. Without God, there are plenty of false hopes that, that we uh, were tempted to buy into, that, that we uh, check out. But Jesus Jesus gives us true hope, a sure hope for all that will trust in him. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, Saul eventually uh, got up. He left that night for his final battle that would come the next day. The rapid decline of Saul as we've been working our way through this book, it's depressing, right? Here's the man who is supposed to deliver his people, and instead he's leading them to defeat. He's, he's destroying them. Saul's story shows us where trusting in our own power, following our own ways, where it leads us, rather than trusting in the Lord and waiting on him. Chapter 30, verse 1. It says, now when David and his men came to Ziklag, so, so they've been booted out of the, the, Israelite ar- or the Philistine army, right? He's headed back to Ziklag. On the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive uh, the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went on their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. Then David said to the people, uh, to the people who were with him, uh, 
sorry, then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. So we, we just left King Saul in terrible anguish, totally hopeless. And now we find David and his men in great distress. The city's been burned. Their families are gone. The author tells us it's the Amalekites. David and his men don't know that yet. The men, it says in the next verses, they're, they're so bitter in their souls that they, they concoct this plan. They're saying, we should stone David. We should kill him. And, and we don't know exactly why they blamed him. Maybe, maybe they were blaming him because uh, he's the one that had led them on all these raids. And, and now someone's raiding them. We don't know. Well, well, we saw Saul without hope. And he had long ago decided to trust in his own ways, to trust in himself. He'd rejected God, and God in turn rejected him. But what would David do when he's in great distress, when his own men blame him and want him dead? The end of verse 6 says this, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. When we meet with God, and when we sit with the Lord, we are strengthened. And I wonder, Harvest, is this our go-to? Do we run to the Lord to strengthen us? Or do we turn to our own ways, to other ways to get us out of our desperation? Verse 8, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. David hears from God. He hears his word and is strengthened by it. And this is something that we've seen David do over and over again. It's one of the ways he demonstrates his trust in the Lord. He goes to the Lord to hear from him. We know that his hope is in God because he runs to God to meet with him, to hear from him. David loves God's word. If you've read Psalm 119, you you know David loves God's word. And I talk to other believers uh, often uh, about um, getting in the Word. And, and normally the conversation involves that person telling me how guilty they feel, right? That they don't get in the Word enough. And I, man, I get it. Like reading God's Word, studying God's Word, it is hard stuff. And a lot of us aren't very good at being disciplined, but we so desperately need God's Word, right? We need God's Word. And, and I think sometimes in our busy, busy lives, we're tempted to just like get a little sample of God's word, like a little bite, like, like I love going to Costco, right? I love making like at least one loop around all the samples. Um, but, but if that's how we're treating God's word, we're missing out, right? Like we need to feast on God's word. And we need to do that with other believers. It will go better when we're, when we're in the Word together, not just here on Sunday mornings, but, uh, but getting together with other believers. I know we have some community groups that are doing that. We have a men's Bible study on, on uh, Wednesday evenings. I heard a rumor that maybe a women's Bible study is going to start up, but we don't have details yet. Um, but if, you, if that freaks you out to go and, and get together with this big group, man, get at least one other person. And start reading the word together. Start getting in God's word together. Stop feeling guilty about it. And just go and meet with the Lord. Because this book, it, it isn't like any other book. Right? It's, it's living and active. Paul talks about this book being able to circumcise our hearts. Now, this book convicts us. It changes us. It, it tells us 
who the Lord is, right? So that we can actually know Yahweh. When we we read about him in this book, like we can know the Almighty. How amazing is that? Well, David, he, he keeps going to God's word. So David, he hears and he's ready to obey. Him and, and 400 of his men, they leave to find their wives and children and, and their cattle. And 200 men are too exhausted. David says, hey, stay, guard the baggage. We're not going to lose anything else. So they go and uh, they come across an, an Egyptian man who had been with the Amalekites but had been abandoned by them. And he took them, um, he took the Israelites to where the Amalekites were. And they found them wildly celebrating uh, they, they were celebrating not just the raid of Ziklag, but the other raids that they had done. And, and their spoil just strewn about the people are all spread out. They're dancing. They're totally drunk. And they're ripe uh, to be attacked. They're totally susceptible. So David and his men attack and they kill almost all of them. Verse 18 says this, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. In our parallel stories, Saul, king of Israel, current king, is is being defeated by the Philistines, and the soon-to-be king, David, here is victorious. He has saved his people. David led his people by God's power, by God's direction, to get everything back and then some. And the men, they're so grateful that they say, the flocks, the herds are yours, David. This is your spoil. So they march back with all this stuff. They come to the 200 men that were too tired to pursue the Amalekites, And this is what happens in verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil, and they say it this way, that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. These worthless men didn't want to share, and they believe that they're the ones that recovered it, that it was by their own power. But David sees that it was God. He says, what the Lord has given us. And this this is how faith works. Faith sees God's provision. I try to talk to my kids about this all the time. Everything we have, and I don't just mean possessions, I mean everything, skills, traits, uh, whatever you like or enjoy or good at the family you're born into, it's all from God, right? It's, it's all what God has provided. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, I think is helpful. It says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Right? David knew that they had their stuff back, they had their wives and their kids back because God had graced them. The the worthless men thought that they'd they'd earned it, that it was done in their own power. And and when we think that way, when when we view uh, life that way, then, then we get greedy, we get stingy. But when we see the grace in our lives, our response at least should be, 
generosity, a, a grace that, that overflows, a sharing grace that God has given us so much that we cannot wait to give and demonstrate how good our God is. Well, David sees the grace of God. And he commands that everyone gets an equal share, and, 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 and this, this would happen from this day forward among Israel. So Israel's first king, Saul, is dead because of his rebellion, and God was establishing King David, the king of Yahweh's choosing. His chosen king would not be like the king that the people demanded. I don't know if you remember this, but back in 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18, Samuel warns the people when they ask for a king, he says, okay, you'll get a king, but this is what the king's like. And over and over again, it says he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take from you. He's not going to give like you think he will. And yet here we see a glimpse of David, a king that gives. And this is what, this is what his kingdom is going to be like. But really, it's a glimpse into what our King Jesus is like. David, it says he, uh, in verse 26, he shared the spoil with his friends, the elders of Judah. So people that weren't even be there, people that weren't there, he gives them some of the spoil. It reminds me, as it calls him friends, reminds me of what Jesus says in John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. And just before that, he talks about them loving one another. He says, greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is exactly what Jesus, our king, has done. He's laid down his life for his people. He shares the spoil of the victory over sin and death with his people. The king that God chose is a king of grace and mercy. And the question is, will you trust God's king? Will you trust Jesus? Chapter 31, while David was dealing with the Amalekites, Israelites, and the Philistines battled, verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So God had warned that this judgment would come to the king and to the people if they did not follow him. So Israel's in battle. They're, they're getting... Uh, they're getting whooped up on by the Philistines. And it says they, they flee up into Mount Gilboa, probably where, where they realized that the, the chariots couldn't follow them. So now the Philistine archers are firing and, and Saul's sons are killed. And Saul himself is shot. And, and the wound is so bad that he turns to his armor bearer and he says, I don't want these Philistines to mistreat me. I need you to just kill me. And David, you might remember, used to be his armor bearer. And we know if David was there, there's no way he would have put his hand against the Lord's anointed. Well, Saul's current armor bearer wouldn't do it either. It says he greatly feared. And my suspicion is that his fear was like David. He feared the Lord. So Saul, realizing that, that this guy wasn't going to uh, do this for him, Saul falls on his sword and kills himself. And eventually Israel realizes Saul's dead. His sons are dead, and they take off. All that could escape fled. The Philistines discover the bodies of Saul and his sons, and, and as, cust as it was customary, they stripped the bodies uh, of the king, of the officials, to further humiliate their enemy. But, but that wasn't enough for the Philistines. They took Saul's body and hung it on a wall so that all could see the victory that they had over Saul and Israel. 
the failure of Saul, who was supposed to deliver Israel from the Philistines, was now complete. And then 2 Samuel 1 begins this way, after the death of Saul. And that's the question. What would happen after the death of Saul? Israel has no king. It reminds us, reminds me at least, of the book of Judges, where over and over again in Judges, it says Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it was not good. It was, it was an evil, wicked time. Israel was in terrible shape. Israel needed a king. The God of reversals is providing his king, the king that he has chosen. So while the, the king of Israel died, Israel soon to be King David, he's returning from the victory. And David knew about the battle. He didn't know what had happened yet, and he was waiting to hear. And a young man that said he was from the battle came, and, and his clothes are torn, he's covered in dirt, a sign of mourning. He says that Israel has been defeated. And he told David that Saul and his sons were dead. And, and, and David wants to know, how do you know this? He asked him these questions. And, and uh, this young man apparently thought that the news of Saul's death, who had tried to kill David over and over again, who, who was the only, the only one standing in the way of David taking the throne, he thought this news would be good in David's ears. So he inserted himself into the story. He, he, he basically pretended that he was in the place of the armor bearer and that when Saul asked the armor bearer uh, to kill him, that, that this young man was there instead. And instead of saying, no, I won't, the guy takes credit. He, he says, yeah, I, I killed him, thinking that the new king was going to reward him, but he was gravely mistaken. David could not believe that this young man would strike the Lord's anointed and he ordered him to be killed. And then David laments. And that's, that's what we see in, in the rest of uh, chapter 1. David grieves. His, his heart is just writhing in pain here. And, and he writes this beautiful poem of lament as he grieves Saul's death, as he grieves Jonathan's death, as he, he just grieves for Israel, God's people. And, and there could be a whole sermon on this, but we're, we're flying over at a bird's eye view. But if you read it this week, my guess is that you noticed he doesn't say one bad thing about Saul, right? If you only read this, you would not know the wicked man that Saul had become. Instead, he talks about good things in Saul, things that were actually good. He talks about Saul being a great warrior, which is true. I mean, he's totally overshadowed because David was even a better warrior. But he talks about Saul being a great warrior. He talks about um, the people that, that loved Saul, Israel. And, and, and there's truth to that. Um, when, when the men of Jabesh-Gilead found out that Saul's body had been stripped and was hanging on this wall, some of them got together and, and they put together a covert operation to recover the body of Saul, to recover uh, his son's body so they could be buried properly. But David, he does not slam Saul in this lament. He was full of grace. Of course, he mourned Jonathan, verse 25. He says, how the mighty have fallen. In the midst of battle, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perish. And he's, he is hurting that his best friend is gone. The, the friend that he they'd made a covenant together. The plan was that when David 
took over as king, that Jonathan would be their second in command. And this is the man who should have been heir to the throne, but he saw what God was doing. He trusted in the Lord's anointed and said, no, I'll be there right with you. And now that friend is dead. And he comments about his love, and he says that, that his love uh, surpassed the love of women. Some people, and I understand, but some people think this is a sexual comment. Everything's not sexual, okay? Like, he's just commenting on how deep their love was for one another, how close their bond was. David, he grieves at these deaths. He, he grieves that his best friend is gone, that that Saul is even gone. And it's a tragic story. Saul started off with all this promise, but he never really trusted in the Lord. He didn't, he didn't trust him enough to wait on the Lord. He, he, would, he would run to his own, his own ways. He'd rely on his own strength. Whatever courage he could muster, it was because of who he was. And we've watched David wait and wait and wait. We've been watching David wait since chapter 16. Right, David clung to God's promises. He trusted in the Lord by waiting on the Lord. And I'm sure it was difficult for him to wait, but he waited and he trusted. He strengthened himself in the Lord over and over again, running to the Lord for strength. He sought after the Lord so that he would know what to do. David was courageous, but, but let's not be mistaken. His, he was courageous in following the Lord. It does take courage to follow the Lord. Right? It's getting less and less friendly where we are to follow the Lord. It takes courage to trust in him, to wait on him. It seems so much easier to take control and do what seems right in your own eyes, in your own experience. I wonder, is there anything right now that you need to wait on the Lord for? Uh, maybe you're tempted to go and take care of it yourself, but do you just need to wait on the Lord? Are you letting the Lord strengthen you? Do you let your courage, do you let your heart take courage in the Lord? Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can come and, and, and see um, not only that, that you set up Israel with King David, the king of your own choosing, but ultimately you've given us Jesus, the, the king that's righteous and faithful, the king that was willing to take our place on the cross, dying for our sin, so that we could be forgiven if we would trust in you, Lord. God, would you help us Lord, there's a lot of people in here, maybe, maybe everyone in here wants to follow you. I don't know. But for all that do, Lord, will you help us to, to trust in you? Would we wait on you, Lord? Would we be strengthened in you and in you alone, Lord? Would we let you fill our hearts with courage so that we can follow you? It's in your name we pray. Amen.